0: That uh, we've seen David comprise, and there's a number of them in the series that we launched last week. One of them was as a shepherd. if you remember last week, as we talked about in that teaching, First Samuel chapter 16, uh, the prophet, the priest Samuel asks uh, David's dad, Jesse, he says, "Are these all your sons?" He goes through all seven sons, because uh, God sent Samuel to anoint the next king. And, and uh, Jesse said, "No, the, they're still the youngest." But he's out watching the the sheep and goats in the field. And then uh, Samuel says, Send for him at once. And the Lord said, This is the one. This is the one that is going to be the next king. Anoint him. So we see we see David comprising the role of a shepherd, but as we find out later in sixteen, this is a man of many talents because he's not just a shepherd, but he's also a skilled musician. And Saul is having these nightmares. In fact, there's this tormenting spirit that's bothering him. He can't sleep that night. Perhaps you had that on Friday night with that big storm that came through uh, your area. You couldn't sleep that night. And that, that's what Saul was experiencing. And, and David's musical ability, abilities were known as such that, that folks knew about his ability on the harp. So they called him into the royal court. Which, ironically, he goes from the pasture fields to the royal court. He's getting closer and closer to the throne that he'll once occupy. And he's playing these songs for King Saul to soothe him. And maybe one of those songs that he played for King Saul, and that we see a number of them in in a section of the Old Testament called the Book of Psalms, maybe one of them was Psalm 108. You'll see it on the slide behind me. My heart is confident in you, O God. No wonder I can sing your praises with all my heart. Wake up, lyre and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among the nations. For your unfailing love is higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Maybe as he was playing that harp, he was humming that song or singing that song to King Saul. And then moving to the end of, the, of, at the end of that psalm and, and that song, Oh, please help us against our enemies, for all human help is useless. With God's help, we will do mighty things. With God's help, we will do mighty things. For he will trample down our foes. With God's help, we will do mighty things. And David went on to do mighty things. Because he wasn't just a shepherd, he wasn't just a musician, he was a mighty warrior. And this morning, I want to spend the rest of our teaching looking at that role. Looking at this role of of David as a mighty warrior and the muddy things that are accomplished through him. And for us, as we look at David, one of the questions that comes up is, what attracts us to David? What is it about him as shepherd, as poet, musician, warrior? What is it about him that compels our attention? What what is it about David? If you look at the span of time across different civilizations, different cultures, uh, different time that David invariably shows up, whether it's Michelangelo in the height of the Renaissance, the 16th century in his famous sculpture, or in England, uh, Sir Conan Doyle, as he bases an episode of this famous series on Sherlock Holmes, on the life of David, to even the 1980s and 90s, as I talked about last week, the famous song called Hallelujah, which is played at the end of Shrek. And the opening stanzas is about King David. It's invariably King David shows up in some way. Why is that? There are 66 chapters in the Bible that mention David, making him the most mentioned person in the entire Bible, more than Jesus, more than Paul. What is it about David? Well, we've been seeking as a community um, in this series to answer that question. And last week we answered that question first by saying it was his humble beginnings. He comes out of nowhere, he's the last of his name. He's the one that's out in the fields watching the shepherd and, she, and, and watching the sheep and goats. And 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 when it comes to Samuel anointing the king, it, David's overlooked. But he's brought in and he's anointed as king. It's as humble as beginnings. That's one of the answers. Another answer that we want to provide this morning is David's um, ability, his courage, and his conviction as a warrior. In your program, you're going to find some teaching notes as an insert. I encourage you to pull that out and follow along. Some of the main points are on there. And I encourage you to fill in the blanks and to follow along with, um, with this teaching. As you do, let me pray for this. Father God, I pray for this sermon. I pray that you would take these words and mold them and shape them into our lives. And God, for us to look at this narrative, this famous chapter in First Samuel chapter 17. Uh, for us to um, allow this story to um, influence, impact our lives. God, I pray for each person here, um, also for us as a church, that this simply won't just be a story, that this won't just simply be an historical story, but that there would be a transformation, that, that you'd use this story to impact our life, to move in a powerful way. God, I submit myself to you. And I've been sitting in this teaching for this past week, and what a pleasure it's been. Anoint these words. Let these words that come out of my mouth be yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to spend most of our time in this uh, section of Scripture. And 1 Samuel is written by Samuel, as I mentioned. He was a a prophet, a priest, eyewitness to the life of David. And... We're going to start with verse 4, and this is probably one of the most famous chapters on the life of David. But before we get into this, we need a little bit of a a context, because uh, this is the famous story of, of David and Goliath, which in many ways is a metaphor in the American lexicon for the underdog, and especially in Minnesota, we love the underdog, don't we? We see ourselves, we identify with the underdog as Minnesotans. It's like, you know, compared to New York City or Los Angeles, little Minnesota is this underdog when it comes to sports teams and other things. We love this sort of metaphor. Uh, Also, this story is is so well known, too. And I remember I was an American Lit major in, in college, and Mark Twain, in a story on Tom Sawyer, Tom Sawyer is asked by his mean, unruly Sunday school teacher to name the biblical chara- some of the biblical characters in the Bible. And Tom Sawyer, of course, can only name two, David and Goliath. So and this is the story that we see. But, but before we get into this, we need to kind, of kind of set up the topography and what's going on. And what is, what's happening here is, is Israel, where it's located, is, is up on a, kind of the uh, higher ground. And there is a series of mountain ranges that surround Israel and Jerusalem. And if a tribe or a group of people wanted to take Israel on or, or try to get to Jerusalem, they would have to, to go through a coastal region and then go into a series of, of valleys. And First Samuel 17 says the Philistines are the, this tribe that comes along. And, and the Philistines are a seafaring group of people. They're a seafaring tribe. In other words, they're kind of like the Vikings they come from the ships. They come from the sea. They make it in the coastal region. And their goal, their objective is to go up to Israel and to take Jerusalem and to split Israel in half. Well, King Saul hears this rumor. So he comes down from Israel with his army to take on the Philistines. And they come into a range of mountains called the Sheculah. It's among the most beautiful valleys and mountains in the Middle East. And in the, in the Shecula is this one valley called the Valley of Elah, where they meet. And what typically would happen is that when you, had, when you had conflicting armies, one army would take a mountaintop range, and the other one would take an opposite range. You can kind of see the picture. This is the Valley of Elah right there. And you can imagine perhaps on this side of the rocks is like the Israelites. And then maybe on the other side are the Philistines. And typically, the armies would kind of face off this way. And then to settle a dispute, what they would do oftentimes is that they would send down their best warrior and to take on the best warrior of the opposing army for a one-on-one combat to save bloodshed. And whoever won that battle, that army typically won. That's exactly the setting of First Samuel 17, verse 4. Let me pick it up here, and the Philistines send somebody very, very large, their, their champion. It says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. That's tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his, on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. I want to skip down to verse 11. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. And then also move in in your Bible to verse 24 and 25. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, this is Goliath, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? So they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. They're afraid of this giant. And you can kind of see in the description right here of just how um, mammoth this warrior is. If you can imagine being on that mountain region, and you're looking down in the Valley of Elah, and, and what would happen is that the the person that would challenge somebody would go down to the valley floor. And that's exactly what Goliath does. He's down on the valley floor of Elah. And he's challenging the Israelites. And they are terrified. If you can imagine just looking down and seeing this gigantic, uh, this gigantic person. And sometimes we read a story like this and we think, for instance, this is tale ish There's no way that a person could be nine feet tall. Not true. In the 1600s, there was a man that lived in England. He was nine feet three inches. He's buried in Liverpool. Yes, it's rare, but it does happen. And Goliath is nine feet tall, an imposing figure. And one of the things that we see here in this passage, if you go back to verse 10, where Goliath says, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. So not only is the the Israelites scared, but he's taunting them as well. Goliath is taunting them. And this word for defy is this uh, Hebrew word karaf. It means to defy. It means to insult. It means to blaspheme. It means to taunt. And that's exactly what Goliath is doing. He's so self-assured. He's so strong and fierce. And And the writer wants you to know that as he describes all of his armor. And he's taunting the Israelites. Again, we see it in verse 11. When, they, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Verse 24 and 25, as soon as they saw him, they began to run away with fright. But we skip ahead to verse 26. Let's go to 26. David asked the soldiers, this is chapter 17, standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Because to David, that's a big deal. Is not only uh, is there a person down there that, that's challenging the Israelites, he's defying. He's defying the God of Israel. He's defying uh, Yahweh. That's a big deal to, to David. Who is this pagan Philistine, anyway, that he has allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Karaf. What, what has allowed him to taunt and to insult our God? And then going down to verse uh, 27. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, "Yes, this is the reward for killing him." But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. "What are you doing around here anyway?" he demanded. "What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know how you're pride your I know you're pride and your—I know your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle." "What have I done now?" David replied. "I was only asking a question." He walked over to some of the others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. I love this response by David. Verse 32, Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous. Saul replied, There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this both to lions and bears, and I'll do, it, do this to the pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of a living God. What we see here with uh, David is that he demonstrates courage. In your notes, that's exactly what he does. He demonstrated courage. Because he makes his way, he makes his way eventually down into the valley of Elah. And just to do that, just to take that step where he he moves from the mountain region with the Israelites and he's got to put up with his his brother Eliab and and that fact that family opposes him doing this. And he's got to put up with King Saul kind of saying, you're not going to be able to do this either. And, And yet David demonstrated courage. Because I'm sure he was nervous. I'm sure as he looks down and sees this giant on the valley floor of Elah, I'm sure he was a bit intimidated by this this giant. But David demonstrated courage. And this is the appeal, I think, of David in many ways, is that the boy goes after the giant, the outsider against the insider. David appeals to us because he gives us hope, doesn't he, with the story. He gives us hope that people with all the power, all the money, all the authority are not going to win every time. David's appeal to us is that, is that it galvanizes us to go on, to embrace the role of the undergo- underdog to get to the top. It's a story that provides us with hope. Despite the intimidating size of Goliath, David answers the call. David has the audacity to walk down the valley. He demonstrated courage. There's a friend of mine that tells me the story that uh, for several years, uh, him and his family would go to a camp here in Minnesota for family camp. And this is something that was very important to him and his family. And they had two kids. And they would go to this camp for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was just to get away from all the busy stuff of life and just to enjoy the summertime and the outdoors. Also, it was a time for this family to... Reconnect with other friends because they had a group of friends. They would kind of meet up at, the, at this family camp together um, and, and just kind of reconnect and be together. Also, it was an important time for this family just to worship together. And in, in the quiet of the chapel, to worship the Lord, to sing, and to have age-appropriate lessons, to hear from great speakers. It was a very important time for this family. And, and the dad tells me this story that one of his fondest memories was actually in the, at the lake because he can remember his children, especially his daughter, at uh, different seasons, different years, that kind of marked the time for him when the first time that she actually, as a baby, got in the water a little bit and, and put her feet in the water in the beach. And then the next year, she was brave enough where he could actually hold her and bring her out, out to the water, you know. And, 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 and as he's doing that, she would have her arms clutched around his neck, almost choking him as they're in the deeper water. And then as she got older, the time came for the big show, was to jump off the end of the dock. Because she had seen the other kids do, do this, and she wanted to jump off the end, of the end of the dock. And as the dad was talking to his daughter about this, he said, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. I promise I'll catch you. And she said, okay. So she goes to the end of the dock, and the dad's standing in the water, and it's about five foot, five foot, five, five foot deep, and he's standing there. He's got his guys arms outstretched, and she's just shaking her head. She's, no, you're not going to catch me. You're not going to catch me. You're going to drop me, aren't you? And he's like, no, it's okay. Jump. I promise I'll catch you. And as parents know, all you have to do is, is say that once, and your kids believe you, right? No. He'll say it like ten times. Just jump! I promise I'll catch you. And her knees were shaking. The dad kind of described this to me, and she's so scared. And and, and, and some of the other family members were kind of encouraging her around. You can do it! You can do it. And the dad is standing there. It's okay. Jump! I promise I'll catch you. And then finally, she jumps off the end of the dock and right into the water, and right into his arms. And she just laughed just started giggling and laughing out, out so loud. And as parents, we know when our kids do something like that, you know, they're, they're done with the activity, right? Because she said to my friend, okay, I'm ready for my nap now. No. She's like, let's keep doing this. Dad, this is so much fun. They did like for an hour and a half. It was like my, my friend said his arms got so weak after a while he could barely catch his daughter. He's so tired. And but this, this, this girl, she demonstrated this courage. Her, and her confidence, her confidence wasn't in her ability, what she could do in the water. Her confidence, her courage came from the fact that her dad was standing right there with his arms outstretched saying, I promise I'll catch you. David's confidence and his courage, as we saw in Psalm 108, with, with God's help, we will do mighty things. His courage and his confidence came from God. That God would be standing there in a sense in the water with his, with his arms outstretched, saving, saying to David, I promise I'll catch you. This is not David simply as a mighty warrior with great skill, and he does have that. David realized, as we saw in Psalm 108, without God's help, um, we have no chance. It's futile. With God's help, we will do mighty things. So, the question for you this morning. As you think about this first point, as David demonstrated courage for you, what might be the steps that you need to to take to demonstrate courage in your own life? Maybe there's something in your life right now where God is sort of nudging you to step into it. But like that daughter at the end of the dock, your knees are knocking, you're afraid, and perhaps it's an area in life where you failed. An area of life where, where some memories come up and you failed, and, and yet you, you, you know that you've got to take that step. I love the quote from Winston Churchill success is never final, failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. And so often we have people and we have a culture that want, want to remind us that failure, failure is fatalistic. It's not, it's courage that counts. God says in Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, be strong and courageous. The Lord God is with you. And and maybe for you, it's it's for you to take the courage to confront some issues with your family. I was talking with with a person, and and for her, the step that she has to take is to confront some issues with her family. She's single, the rest of her, her sisters are all married, and when it comes to um, different events and different planning. She's often overlooked, and it's been the case for many years. And for her, it's it's having the courage to confront and talk to her sisters about being left out. What is it for you? What is God um, prompting and nudging you to to step into? I know a student that had the courage recently, this past school year, who had downloaded an essay off the internet and had turned it in and put his name on it. He didn't write a single word of that essay. Just downloaded it and turned it into a, a teacher. He knew it was wrong and had the courage a week later to go up to his teacher and say, you know what? That essay I turned into you, that wasn't mine. I downloaded that. I simply put my name on it. I cheated. What might be it for you? What is God nudging you to do to show courage, demonstrate courage in your life? With God's help, we will do mighty things. All right, let's move on. Let's go to verse 41 as we pick up the story. And, and by the way, I wish I could go through every aspect of the story, but uh, there's so much here that I think we'd be here for a couple hours. I don't know if you'd want to do that. I'd like it, but I'm not sure if you would. Verse, let's go to verse 41. Verse 41. Goliath walked out toward David with a shield-bearer ahead of him. If if you have your own Bible, underlying shield bearer, I'm going to come back to that in a second because that's an important note. Sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy, am I a dog? He roared at David that you come at me with a stick. He cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistines, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. I love that. It's actually the holy name of God. When it says Lord here, it's Yahweh. It's a very, very precious, it's a name not mentioned very often times, but David mentions it here. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, again, Yahweh will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head and I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Okay, stopping right there is what we see here is a a couple of notes. Um, As soon as David um, comes down into the valley of Elah to face off with Goliath, he already has the advantage. Okay, this is a story oftentimes about the underdog. But once David overcomes his fright and nervousness of going down to the valley Elah, once he gets to the valley floor, he has all the advantage. Goliath is a sitting duck. Okay? I want to make a few notes here. Follow along with me. Because this story, as it's popularly understood, actually, I'm going I'm to challenge that with uh, a different perspective. Okay? First of all, Goliath is there and he has all this armor on. Why is that? Well, there's three different kind of warriors and soldiers back in that day, and when it came to combat, one of them was an armored uh, combat warrior, and that's exactly Goliath. He puts on all this armor. Well, David, as he's coming down to the valley of Elah, he chooses. He doesn't choose that because he isn't an armored warrior. He's called a slinger. That's one of the reasons why he says to Saul, "I I don't want your armor." I'm going to be the warrior that I am, and I'm a, I'm a slinger. I'm going to get to that in a second. But Goliath has all this armor on, and if you notice something, is that he can't see very well. And that's actually one of the implications of what we call giantism. There's actually been a study done on this. And it's typically when you're a giant, there's a dysfunction with your pituitary, pituitary, pituitary glands and that you can't see very well. And your vision gets blurred. And that's one of the reasons why he has a shield-bearer with him. Because when you're, when you're doing one-on-one combat, you would not normally have a shield-bearer with you. You would be by yourself. So it's very odd that there's a shield-bearer there in this combat. And yet, Goliath needs that because he can't see very well. Another reason why we, can't, we know that he can't see very well, what does he say when he sees David? You come at me with a stick he can't even see that that David actually has a shepherd's staff. On top of that, he can't even see that David actually has a sling because the sling is not hidden somewhere. Again, there's three different kind of warriors. Any warrior would have saw that a slinger would have had a sling right there. And that's one of the deadliest weapons in any kind of combat. Okay? So Goliath can't see very well. On top of that, Goliath is slow. Let's move on to verse 48. We'll see this right here. As Goliath moved closer to attack, just kind of note that in the Hebrew, it, he's moving actually quite slow here. You can't capture it in the English, but he moved closer to the attack. It's like he's, he's kind of moving towards David. Now notice the contrast. David what? Quickly, quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into a shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with a sling. It hit the Philistine in the forehead. The the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face face down on the ground. Okay? So Goliath can't move very fast. He's got all this armor on. He can't see very well, and he moves very slowly. Meanwhile, David is a slinger, and he can move very quickly. Now, back in the day, again, one of the, the types of warriors, one of the three types of warriors, is a slinger. In a modern day uh, warfare, you would compare David to a sniper. Okay? I'm not exaggerating things. And a slinger was absolutely deadly. They were believed to be the deadliest kind of warrior back in the day. Incredibly accurate. Okay? Uh, When we say slingshot, we're not talking like in the backyard, you know, picking a rock and doing this kind of stuff. The slings they had back then were a, a bit different. And in his book on David and Goliath last year, Malcolm Gladwell details the story in in just an amazing book. And we have a TED Talk of Malcolm Gladwell explaining just kind of the the specifics around the sling. Let's go ahead and watch that.
1: There is heavy infantry, which are foot soldiers, armed foot soldiers with uh, swords and shields and some kind of armor. And there is artillery. And artillery are archers, but more importantly, slingers. And a slinger is someone who has a leather pouch with two long cords attached to it. And they put a projectile, either a rock or a lead ball, inside the pouch. And they whirl it around like this. And they let one of the cords go. And the effect is to send the projectile forward at, um, uh, towards its target. Right? That's what David has. And it's important to understand that that sling is not a slingshot. It's not this. Right? It's not a child's toy. It's, in fact, an incredibly devastating weapon. When David rolls it around like this, he's, he's turning his, uh, this thing around probably at six or seven revolutions per second. And that means that when the, ball is, when the rock is released, it's going forward really fast, probably 35 meters per second. That's substantially faster than uh, uh, baseball thrown by um, even the finest of baseball pitchers. More than that, the stones in the Valley of Elah were not normal rocks. They were barium sulfate, which are rocks twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistic, on the stopping power of the rock fired from David's sling, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a 45 millimeter handgun. This is an incredibly devastating weapon. Accuracy, we know from uh, historical records. That slingers uh, had experienced slingers could hit um, and may more serious or or even kill a target at distances of up to 200 yards. From medieval tapestries, uh, we know that slingers were capable of hitting birds in flight. There is heavy infantry. He has the advantage. And in doing so,
0: I believe on your second, uh, the second note on your uh, handout is that David showed that giants seem bigger than they are. How true is that in our lives? When we're intimidated, we're terrified like the Israelites. But as David gets down in the valley floor of Elah, the tables had been turned. And so many of us here this morning need to hear that, that giants seem, uh, they seem bigger than they actually are. A friend of mine um, recently has, had some health tests. And he was sharing with me just how terrified he was around these, these, these um, health tests. And I was thinking about this story, and I was trying to remind him, you know what, they might be bigger than they actually are. These might be the giants that seem bigger than you actually, actually are. And I was trying to encourage him. And as he, as he went through the tests, and he was kind of holding on to that thought, Because for him, these were giants. He was so terrified about the negative news. He had faith in God. Be strong and courageous. He came through those health tests. He said, Craig, you were right. It seemed like after the first one, it came through clear. I began to believe that I had been so intimidated by this that these tests seemed a lot larger than they actually were. What is it for you? What might be the giants in your life that from a distance they seem so large, nine feet tall, with all this armor? And maybe you're looking at it so much that you forgot the advantage that you have. With God's help, we will do mighty things. Do we actually believe that this morning? Do you actually believe that in your heart? With God's help, you will do mighty things. A friend of mine told me this story that um, a handful of years ago he began a a friendship with a guy who wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. And one of his desires was to be able to share his faith and to lead this person to Christ. And and they hit it off. They had so many things in common, fishing and golfing, and they'd spent a lot of time together, almost to the point where their their wives are like, man, you guys are spending way too much time together. And and you, you need to spend more time at home. But they just got along so well. And as, as this, this friend was telling me, as he reached out to this guy, and it was this prayer that at some point, he didn't want to force, but at some point he wanted to share about his belief in Jesus Christ because this, is a, this was a guy that, that, that he was reaching out to, hadn't been to church for years, and had actually shared that. But this friend of mine hadn't really shared his faith before. Didn't know how to say it, didn't know what words to use. And, and this was kind of a giant for him. It made him a little bit terrified, a little bit intimidated. And he said, you know, one time we were fishing and the door began to open. And this guy began to talk about church for the first time and said, you yeah, know, I haven't been to church in 20-some years. I don't go on Christmas, I don't go on Easter, and, and I haven't been to church in years. And, and my friend just kind of swallowed, took the big gulp, gulp, and his mouth was dry, and then he just started to, to, to talk. And meanwhile, he's talking, he's saying, God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. And began to talk about his faith. And he told this, this guy, he said, you know what, when it comes down to it, it's not about religion, it's not about church. Uh, it's about a relationship in Jesus Christ as the Savior and leader of your life. He explained to him his story and his journey. And his, this guy responded and asked him more questions. And then a few years later, uh, my friend had the opportunity and gift and privilege to lead this guy to faith in Christ. Sometimes the giants seem so daunting when you look at them from a distance. What is it for you? What is it for you? Taking that step like David did and believing that God will use that in in your own life. What might that be? So not only does David demonstrate courage, not only does he show that giants seem bigger and larger than they actually are. The last one, this is a big deal, um, especially for Israel, and as this story was retold back in the day of Jesus, is that he stood up for the name of the Lord. He stood up for the name of the Lord. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 4. I don't have a lot of time to to get into this. I need to uh, close shortly here. But Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Because when it comes to God, there's something about David that David was moved. He was moved by the holiness of God. He was moved by the presence of God. There was something deep in the fiber of David's bones that he loved the Lord God and he was so moved by him and so consumed with God of his glory, and of his holiness, that there is nothing like this on the face of the earth. There's almost this vision that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And Isaiah writes, It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew they were calling out to each other holy 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 is the lord of heaven's armies the whole earth is filled with his glory so god is sitting on a lofty throne and by the way it's much bigger than this the sort of vision that Isaiah has, it'd be be almost like one leg of the throne would be like over by North Memorial and perhaps the other leg of the throne would be over at Arbor Lakes and the other leg of the throne would be way out there past that you could see and the other leg out there, it's this massive throne, maybe 800 feet, 900 feet high and it's so massive and Isaiah is so consumed by the glory and holiness of God. He's moved by that and I think David, the reason why he stood up for the name of God is that he was moved by the holiness and glory of God. When is the last time that you and I were moved by simply the holiness and glory of God? That by itself. Just that. That we worship a holy God who is full of glory. Does that move us today at all? What moves us? What moves us? Is it seeing these cool dinosaurs in Jurassic World? Like, wow, that is so amazing. That moves me. Or is it going to a Katy Perry concert or a Coldplay concert? Like, it's such an incredible experience. It's beyond words. That moves me so much. Or maybe it's, it's you and your family going on this Alaskan cruise. that's once in like 20 years you do something like this. And it moves you so much. And the Bible, the voice of the Bible is arguing, you've got to be moved more than that. The God that we worship is a God of holiness and he, he should move you to the point that you stand up for his name. And when it comes into conversations in the workplace and, and maybe somebody insults God or there's a, perhaps a profane joke that you actually stand up for the name of God and say, I'm not going to be a part of that. Or maybe somebody takes a slam at Christianity or, or slams church. What will you do? Are you so moved by the holiness and glory of God that you're going to stand up and say, let me, let me just graciously respond to that? Will this church be a church that stands up for the name of the Lord in Maple Grove and Osseo and the surrounding areas? Will this church be a light in a culture that is increasingly becoming dark, a world and a culture where morals are slipping? Will this church be a light for this area? where we're so moved by the glory and holiness of God that we stand up for his name, not in a judgmental way, not in a mean way, but with graciousness and because we love the Lord our God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's army. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks this morning as we look at the life of David a man who comprised many roles, shepherd, musician, poet, and warrior. And God, as we end this teaching this morning, I just pray for each of us to be so moved by your glory and your holiness as to look at the stuff of this life and realize it's so temporary. It's like a, a new car or a new appliance. After a while, it just the newness kind of rubs off and it loses its, its appeal. But God, the appeal of you, we never lose. I pray that you would um, light up our church to be moved by your holiness and your glory so that as a church community that we become this bright and radiant light in this area for you and for your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.